0: Y'all know the old phrase, does it pass the smell test, right? Y'all familiar with that phrase? Has really nothing to do with smells. It just has to do with, you know, just your initial, uh, your initial understanding of something. Is that legit? Does that, does that make sense? Does it pass the smell test? We're going to ask that question this morning. Does it pass the smell test? This morning we're going to be in John chapter 12, but we're not going to have like a memory game or to see who has the best memory or whatnot. But do y'all have those times in your life where where you, you think back to something that happened maybe weeks ago or, or years ago or decades ago or however sharp your memory is but you think back to a moment that's kind of a pivotal moment that you think back to that, that uh, an occurrence or a, a tent pole, if you will in your life that you remember a certain event but then as you start unpacking this certain event you start thinking about and uh, unpacking certain details related to that event y'all know what i'm talking about you think back to something and you're like, is that is that how it really went? Is that what it was really about? And and it's not that you forget the event. You remember the event, but sometimes the details can kind of wear on you. You know what I mean? But you think back and it's like, man, what, what was that like? What was that like? Is that how it should have been? Like looking back on this moment in my life, is, is, that, is that kind of how it should have turned out? Could I have done something different about it? it was, as I look back on this thing, shouldn't it have been a little different? and this isn't about the game last night that was a struggle man that was that was messed up it was crazy but what i'm talking about is just related to the things like if you ever look back on something and think man was it is it really should have been like that maybe it's too vague let's kind of narrow it down let me let me ask you think back to the areas in your life pertaining to worship Think back to some areas in your life that you think back to worship. When, when you witnessed worship take place or you were a part of worship taking place, maybe it was a time where you look back on when you experienced the presence of the Lord. Maybe it was uh, uh, maybe something that happened at camp. Maybe it was a revival meeting. Whether whether Maybe it was just a conversation you had with a godly brother or sister in Christ that you look back on and you think about, man, did it really happen that way? Was it really like that? Should it have, should it have gone differently? Why, why can't I get back there? Think about your worship, something you can think back to. You ever ask those questions when you start thinking about the details of like, man, what if I could have been a little bit more engaged? What if this could have happened? What if that could have We, we have these, these memories, right? And memories are good. But the reason I'm kind of walking you through this uh, for you to consider is because this morning we're going to be looking in John chapter 12. But I want you to understand something before we dive into John chapter 12. John chapter 12, let's see any biblical scholars in the room. Does anybody know who wrote the book of John? Very good. Some theologians in the room. Yes, John wrote the book of John. It's mind-blowing. But when we say John, what you understand is the Apostle John is sitting, John the Baptist, this is John, one of the disciples who followed Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John wrote the book of John. Now, what we understand this is John is the, the last gospel, but it was also the last of the gospels written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was the last gospel written. Matthew, Mark, and Luke Uh, is known as the Synoptic Gospels. They deal a lot with the same content. They talk about the same scenarios. They talk about the same instances, moments, in time. They deal with the same content. John kind of stands alone. John was the one that in time was written the latest. It was written around 90 A.D. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they were written 60s, 70s. Some say that Luke might have been written in the early 80s, but John was written at 90 A.D. So it was the last of the Gospels that was written. Uh, If you think back, if you look and study John's writings, it's 90 AD. He wrote his epistles, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, around 92, 93 AD. Revelation was penned around 95 AD. I'm giving you an idea. And the reason this is important is because if he's writing these words around 90 AD, when we know Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension happened uh, in the 30s AD, do you all see a time gap that's taking place here? We see something that was about 55 years after the fact that John is now uh, writing. He's, he's either dictating it and somebody writing his words down and he's writing it himself. So when we talk about this, when we dive into this book of John, I want you to understand that we are reading the words from a man in his in later in life who's thinking back to these amazing instances that he had with Jesus Christ. And it's not that I'm, I'm trying to tarnish the book of John, absolutely not, it's God's eternal word, it is infallible, uh, but what I want us to see is it's kind of like if you had a conversation with somebody on the pew with you and you asked them about a major moment in their life and say, will you tell me about that? The details and the information they share with you pertaining to that instance is really what's going to tell the tale, it's really what's going to paint the picture, So when we look at John chapter 12, I want us to remember this is what John remembers about this time with Jesus. These are really rich, rich words that we get to look into this morning. So as we look at John chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, I want us to look at, after we read through it, I want us to look at John's three memories of worship. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was, come, was, was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a year's worth wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So as we look through this passage, we're just kind to kind of unpack it and walk through it a little bit, because I want you to see as John is remembering this instance, I want to point out the three memories of worship that John has about this text. And we're just going to kind of start at a bottom and work our way up. The first memory he has, one of the memories he has of worship is remembering these religious leaders. If you look back and if you study John a little bit earlier, you see and in chapter 11, you already see the plot was set in motion to arrest Jesus. They had already vocalized the idea that, hey, this Jesus guy, he's a problem and we got to kill him. But in order to kill him, we need to arrest him. So they had actually even already started spreading word amongst some of the Jewish nation that said, hey, you know what? We're going to be plotting to arrest Jesus. So if you see an opportunity, if you know where he is, let us know. This has already led to Jesus not being so public in his travels, but he was just kind of doing his thing a little more quietly. So we see their heart's intent earlier uh, before we even get to chapter 12. But they were afraid of Jesus. Why were they afraid of Jesus? of Jesus. It's not like his resume have had him just in battles and warfare and wiping people out at the... I mean, why were they scared of Jesus? Because their worship extenuated what they were afraid to lose on his account. If you look it back, you recognize that Jesus was a threat to this religious leaders. Their worship was about themselves. Their worship was about their social status. Their worship was all about them. They were scared of Jesus Jesus was a threat to their power. Jesus was a threat to their influence. Jesus was a threat to their reputation. Jesus was even a threat to their nation. I want you to look, leave in chapter 12, but in John chapter 11, I want to point out a verse to you. Look in chapter 11, verse 48. Look at what they say here when they're talking about the plot to kill Jesus. This is what they say in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. These religious leaders were so consumed with their, themselves and their control and their power that they had even taken ownership of the Jewish nation, which we know as God's chosen people, it became their nation. So this worship that, that John remembers when he starts thinking about this, these religious leaders, these chief priests, Or how they were so consumed with preserving for themselves something to make known. And it wasn't just the fact that Jesus was a threat to them. Now we see in this passage, Lazarus was a threat to them. They just said, hey, you know what? They started plotting to kill Lazarus too. Because his simple life was evidence that Jesus was legit. Just because he drew breath pointed to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. And that threatened them everything in their world was attempted was about to be disrupted because this man was the real thing they were so consumed with just being somebody that it was leading them to murderous plots you know we can get caught up in that too don't we sometimes we get this craving to exalt ourselves don't we And you don't not consciously think, you know what, today I'm not going to exalt Jesus. I'm going to choose to exalt myself. We don't exactly maybe have those thoughts. If you do, then let's have a conversation. But we get caught up in this idea of, well, what is it that I want? What is it that makes me happy? What is it that makes me comfortable? And we know in the back of our mind, if we've been in the word and we've been spending time with God's people and and understanding what God's been leading us to do, it's like, you know, what? this isn't exactly what I should be doing, but man, that's what I really want to do. Man, that makes me happy. Man, that serves my purpose. Man, this would make my family feel better. Man, this would be beneficial for me. Man, we crave to exalt somebody. And most of the time as humans, when we crave to exalt ourselves, it's going to cost somebody else, isn't it? You think about like the schoolyard back in elementary school. It wasn't about who was getting made fun of, although that was kind of the object of the scorn, but why were they getting made fun of? So that people who were dealing with shortcomings could deflect those shortcomings on somebody else. Y'all remember that? Y'all know that's the whole psyche behind bullying. It's the same way when we get into the professional world, when we get into college, when we get into uh, family, we get in this idea that we want to put others down so that we can look better. We exalt, we crave to exalt ourselves. No wonder John the Baptist said it best when John quoted him a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3 verse 30 when he says, He must become greater, I must become less. We get caught up in this idea. This is exactly what the religious leaders, the plot they fell into because they were so afraid. It was a us versus him mentality. They were so afraid that more people are going to follow Jesus and not follow us. They were so consumed with preserving their own reputation. They wanted to make sure they maintained their power. They wanted to make sure they maintained their influence. They really wanted to make sure they got plenty of likes on their social media. They wanted to make sure everything that projected them was exalted and elevated. And it was going to cost Jesus and now Lazarus because they were so consumed with worshiping themselves. And you know, one week later, after this was written, one week, their worship for themselves put Jesus on a cross. One week later. What do you do with Jesus in your everyday life? Not Sundays, maybe not even Wednesdays. What do, you do, what do you do with Jesus on your everyday life? Is it a us versus him mentality? Is it a competition, me versus Jesus, to make sure I look good, I'll give Jesus' his due, we'll say the blessing maybe, but that's about it? What do you do with Jesus on your everyday life when it came to worship, when it came to what they were bringing to the table, when it came to their object of worship, which was themselves and their own social status? Does their worship pass the smell test? Nah. Not good enough. Not good enough. And if you keep kind of going backwards, backtracking up to this text, you get to the second, one of the other memories that John has is he's remembering this story. He's laying it all out. He starts thinking back to this other person that dealt with worship, and it was Judas Iscariot. What does John remember about this part? If you look in verses 4 through 6, when we see Judas speak up to, in response to this, this lady that was pouring this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, what does John remember about this? i tell you what he does remember. He remembers enough to call him by name this is one of the stories that's actually in all four gospels or at least kind of shadows of it and in none of the other gospels do they mention him by name John did John didn't pull back John didn't say I think one of the gospels said some of them began to murmur among themselves no John was like hey I know who exactly who it was but one of his disciples Judas Iscariot for those keeping score, throw out his last name man I mean he got real Judas Iscariot this is who it was this was his focus. This is where his heart was at. Oh, well, John remembered. John remembered what worship Judas was demonstrating in this in this scene. Man, he didn't even hold back on Judas if you look at it. If you look at this text, he went straight savage on him. man. He didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. He helped himself to the... Man, he just started, hey, this is who Judas was. This is a this is man's memory. is how he remembers it. And this was all done before Judas even betrayed Jesus. To see this character on display. This is what John remembered about Judas. As Judas was so consumed about what it was going to cost him. See, Judas being the money keeper, that means that the money chest or the money bag or whatever they used to keep any type of financial gain, that he was responsible for keeping up to it. So when Judas had this thing of like, well, well, man, you could have sold that and like given money to the poor. And I bet when John is thinking back on this and thinking about how it all unfolded and kind of seeing how it all made sense, he probably started thinking like, man, I wonder how many other times Judas helped the poor. Maybe Judas himself was putting himself in that category because he just said, here, he helped himself all the time to the money pit. He reached his hand in often and took what he wanted. Because that's what Judas was for. If you actually go back and read and see the accounts that we have of Judas throughout the Gospels, man, you get this idea that Judas was only in this thing for himself. This whole disciples and followers of Jesus, he was only in this thing for himself. I remember one of our seminary professors was talking through and kind of unpacking some of the things with Judas and his obsession with money and how we see him constantly dealing with money that, when, that a lot of these disciples, as they were following Jesus, didn't get the big picture even as Jesus was trying to tell them about the kingdom of God and tell them about the sacrifice of his life for the sake of humanity, they didn't get it. But Judas really didn't get it. They're all sitting there thinking, man, he's going to bring in to his time a kingdom. And when he comes into his kingdom, we're going to be his 12 and we're going to be like really big, important guys. And you can imagine Judas is like, man, can you imagine the vault of the kingdom? This is going to be great. Because he's reflecting his heart of worship in his statement here. Why wasn't it sold and given money to the poor? He didn't understand what, he, what Mary was doing in her worship because he was sitting there thinking about what it was going to cost him. Man, that's, oh, that's a whole year's worth of wages. She's dumping it out all over the floor. Some of it's landing on his feet. Man, you know how much we could have gotten if we'd have sold that? He gets so caught up in this. And show me the difference between Judas and modern-day humanity. Show me the difference between him and a lot of us. That if we can just get, if we just get a little bit more, if we can just work those extra hours, if we can just get that next raise, if we can just get that promotion, if we can just get that paycheck a little bit larger, we're going to be good. You know what? So maybe I did, maybe I did miss church several Sundays in a row, but I worked overtime on Saturday night and it's going to be worth it when we get that paycheck. It's going to be great. We get so consumed with this stuff that we think is going to validate us just like Judas. He gets consumed and that was his object of worship is when he was sitting there and all of a sudden they started pouring this out. Could you imagine how fidgety he got? Because that is what his heart was focused on. Does your does your worship cost you anything? I mean, we've looked at two instances already, and we see that it's going to cost somebody something. You know, for the religious leaders, their worship was going to cost Jesus and Lazarus their lives. You know, for for Judas, it cost him uh, because he saw this money and this this equity being dumped out of the floor. Does your worship cost you anything? Because if it doesn't, is it really worship? Is it really a sacrifice if it costs us Nothing. Is it really a sacrifice if we don't choose to do without in order so that we may be a part of worship? And, and don't get me wrong, man. Don't, don't start thinking monies and cents. I'm not talking about financially is it costing you something. although in our worship is to bring a tenth of our, what we have earned into the storehouse, God's word commanded it. That is an act of worship. But, but when we gather together as the body of believers, when we come and we stand together and have the privilege to lift up the name of Jesus, I don't sing well. But you know what? It's not about my voice, it's about the object of our worship. Does it cost you something? When you have that, that, that non believer that you work with, and you know for a fact they're not a believer because of the fruit in their life, as the Word tells us to examine. Has it cost you to speak the gospel into that situation, or are you scared of what they might think of you? Does your worship cost you anything? Because when we see Jesus in His act of obedience and His worship to His heavenly Father, it cost Him everything. And our worship, when we bring something of worth to God, it should cost us something. If I gave Terrence a ten-dollar bill, I'm out ten bucks. I think I'll be all right. If I gave Terrence $100,000, that's a pretty big deal. Why? Because he knew it cost me something. Don't get your hopes up, by the way. I got you. It should cost us something because what we bring to the Father should be something of worth, of value. Parents, can I ask you something? When was the last time as you thought about and planned for your children's futures did you ever just think like instead of you know they're going to be a doctor and a lawyer so i can be in the nice retirement home one day have you ever gone and put hands on your children or just in thinking of them god if you call them to africa to be a missionary then be praised that my children would be my worship because I trust in you. God's leadership of them in another continent is far better than your leadership of them in the corporate world. Are we worshiping God because it's going to cost us something? Because God is worth it. Does your worship cost you? Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 7 and 8, he says this, each of you should give what you decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It doesn't say a word about money in there, church. It says about what you're willing to give. It doesn't say anything about what you're going to get. It says, what are you willing to give? Now, old John remembered what Judas was all about. Old John remembered what Judas was about worship. Old John remembered where Judas's mind and his heart was when it came to his worship. Let me ask you this, church. Judas's worship, does it pass the smell test? Nope. Well, there's this last figure that demonstrates the worship that we have here. And I actually, uh, because this passage is used in our music ministry's um, mission statement, I invited my friend David to really lay out for us a, diff- a better understanding of this beautiful passage of worship, Dave?
1: So what is the context of the passage? It's Saturday. Verse number 1 says six days before the Passover. It's Saturday. Six days before the Passover. On Monday, Jesus will use a borrowed colt, the colt of a donkey, to ride into the city where the people will shout, Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Tuesday, Jesus will go into the temple and drive out the money changers and he will declare my father's house will be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of thieves. On Wednesday, in hopes to shame him To trick him and to trap him. And ultimately to execute him. The chief priest, the scribes and the elders will question him for hour after hour after hour. A question of authority. A question of responsibility. A question of eternity. A question of priority. And a question of identity. But after every question is answered perfectly. Mark chapter 10 says. And they dared not ask him any more questions. On Thursday. He will send his disciple. To a room that he has chosen. To observe and to celebrate with his most intimate friends. The very last observance of Passover. It's Passover, feast of unleavened bread. And he will explain that after all these hundreds of years, what you've been doing to celebrate freedom from bondage from Egypt is really about me and the freedom that I offer you through the forgiveness of your sin. This is my body. This is my blood. And later that night, one of those very twelve, the one that Justin has already named, will betray him with a kiss. He'll be arrested after praying in an olive grove. Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And he will tell all of his disciples, you will all be scattered. He will be taken to a trial, a three-part Jewish trial and a three-part Roman trial. And everything that they say against him is a lie. And then he will be denied by Peter himself. And on Friday at 9 o'clock in the morning, they will nail his body to a tree. And at 3 o'clock on Friday, he will breathe his last after declaring, It is finished. And by sundown, he will be laying stone cold in the ground. And he will lay in the ground on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. But the temple that was destroyed, he will rebuild in three days. Because on Sunday morning, he rose from the grave victorious and walked out. Six days before Passover. And Jesus knows it all. It's not happening to him. It's being orchestrated by him. He picked the donkey. Right? He told him in advance, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, they come coming for me. He sent him to find the man to go to the upper room. He told him sitting at supper, you're going to betray me. He told him sitting at supper, you're going to scatter. He told him sitting at supper, you're going to deny me. He had told him time and time again that he will die but will rise again. This is the backdrop of John chapter 12. And it's on his mind. And it's in his heart. And yet, Jesus came to Bethany. That's what Jesus does, y'all. Jesus comes. When we cannot come to where Jesus is, guess what? Jesus comes to us. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came. And He came to Bethany. To Lazarus' house. Why did he come? Because he loved Lazarus. Why did he come? Because he loved Mary. Why did he come? Because he loved Martha. Back in chapter 11 it says in verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying. And the Jews who had come with her crying. He was deeply moved in his spirit. And troubled. Lord, they told him, come and see. And verse 35 says, Jesus wept. And verse 36 said, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. The one Jesus had raised from the dead. See, Lazarus had a problem. Lazarus was sick. But Lazarus wasn't just sick. Lazarus was bad sick. But Lazarus wasn't just bad sick. Lazarus was sick unto death. And Lazarus wasn't just sick unto death. Lazarus was dead. But Lazarus wasn't just dead. Lazarus was dead and stinking. That's what Jesus does. He takes sick things and makes them well. He takes dead things and makes them alive again. Ephesians chapter 2 says, You were born in trespass and sin, you are sons of disobedience. You are children under wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, so that in the coming ages He might hold us up and say, Look at my honey. So they gave him a dinner. Verse number 2 says, so they gave a dinner for him. They gave a dinner for him. God says in the book of Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Laodicea. God says, I know your works. And they're neither hot or cold. I wish they were hot or cold, but they're not. They're lukewarm. And because they're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Because you think you have everything. And then he says, be zealous and repent. Then he says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Jesus will dine with anyone that invites him. Jesus will go wherever he is welcomed. So where there had been sickness and sadness and death, there was now a family reunion. A dinner. And who was there? Martha. What was Martha doing? What Martha always did. Before there was Martha Stewart, there was OG Martha. Just serving and cooking and doing the thing that she did, you know. Who else? Lazarus. What was he doing? What all men do? He was reclining. Lazarus, the one formerly known as dead, is now lazy boy Lazarus, chilling at the table with Jesus. And then there's Mary. And the Bible says that Mary took a pound of perfume. Pure and expensive nard. Anointed Jesus' feet. And wiped his feet with her hair. Justin's already told us this is a year salary a year and she poured it on his feet this is an able kind of offering this isn't leftovers this is first fruits this is an Abraham and Isaac type of offering God, I won't hold anything back from you. This is a woman with two small coins. Not giving out of plenty, but giving all that she had. The glory of a woman is her hair and she unbound her hair and she wiped the feet of Jesus with her hair because Mary recognized that her glory paled in comparison to the God of glory, King Jesus. She understood that our righteousness is as filthy rags. And God, you've given me everything. Lazarus would call this unreasonable. Kind of silly. The Bible says in Romans chapter 12. I urge you then, brothers and sisters. To offer your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Or this is is your reasonable service. What's reasonable about it? What's reasonable about, God, I will love you with all my heart. What's reasonable about, God, I will love you with all my soul. What's reasonable about, God, I will love you with all my heart and with all my strength. What is reasonable about, deny myself, take up my cross daily, and follow after Him? It's only reasonable if Under God's wrath, Jesus rescues me from sin and its penalty. And if he does, it only makes sense. What's the result? What's the result of Mary's reasonable... Act of worship. The Bible says that. The house was filled. With the fragrance. Of the perfume. Mary's. Unconditional. Undeserved. Robust. Radical. Unhindered. Worship of Jesus Christ resulted in every other person under that roof having to come face to face with the object of her worship the Lord Jesus. And that's our privilege. Everywhere we go the places where we live where we work and where we play To be the fragrance, the aroma of Jesus Christ. What once was death, now life in a world that needs salvation. Because God has loved us, we will love the Lord lavishly and by our love expose others to his goodness so that others can worship God too.
0: So I ask you church Does Mary's worship pass the smell test? I'd say it does And When you think about it Talking about what it costs One chapter earlier her brother died Her brother died And was in the tomb for four days See Mary was a follower of Jesus See when Jesus showed up He told Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Mary had heard Jesus teach. She had heard him be proclaimed. She understood who Jesus was. If she didn't, then why didn't she pour this spice on her brother's body a chapter earlier? She was saving it. And Jesus tells us that in verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. It was her act of worship. And it passed the smell test. She worshipped him as Messiah. You know, I did a little research on memory. And most of you already know this. But you know the sense that is tied with memory the most? What is it, Nancy? I see you. Your nose, your sense of smell is closest associated with your memory. So I think when when old John is sitting there telling this story, I can imagine a little smirk or a smile across his face when he dictated to the person writing, yeah, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. You could just smell the evidence of her worship. Matter of fact, everybody in the house experienced her worship oh i bet old john was sitting there thinking man i could tell you what it smelled like to this day i know that smell it was the smell of worship let me ask you this church what happens when we come in here what happens when we come in this room or or your sunday school class your small group home tonight what happens when you walk in And I'm just talking to Westmead members from now. I'm not ignoring you guests. I just need to talk to our people for just a little bit. But we have guests in here this morning. We're going to have guests in here next week. In two weeks, Easter Sunday, you better believe there's going to be some guests in the house. What are they going to smell when they walk in here because of us? Are they going to walk in and smell a bunch of people who are more worried about how big their Sunday school class is or how nice they dress or who has the most number of friends sitting around them and worried about ourselves? Are they going to walk in and start seeing the, our worship, what they're going to smell, is they're going to smell uh, what we're obsessed with, our money, our clothes, our cars, whatever it is? Are they going to walk in and the whole house, the aroma of the worship, of true worship, of a living God and experience Our worship, because the whole house was filled with the fragrance of our worship. Are we getting the house ready so that others may worship with us? Because if our worship smells like anything else, it's going to stink. Because it smells like death. What are you doing to get in the house ready for worship, church? Isn't it time to fill the house? Isn't it time to fill the house with the lost and the hungry and the searching and the dying? Isn't it time to fill the house, church? Then let's fill this place with the fragrance of true worship. Will you bow your head as we pray? Father God, I pray today... that you ready our hearts and in doing so you prepare this house to be a house of worship and God the only way to do that is not to to look at us corporately but God the only way to do that is for those people in this room that profess Jesus as Lord and proclaim Christ alone in salvation that we lay our hearts before you and say Father God sift through it, work it out. God, show me areas in the life where my, my life, where my worship is not pleasing to you. God, show me areas where my worship doesn't pass the smell test because on a second look, it's not pleasing to you because it exalts me. It exalts what I'm about. It exalts what I'm pursuing. Father God, reveal to each one of us as the body of Christ, where our worship is lying. Show us what it's costing us. And if it's not, make us aware of it. God, awaken our hearts today to remind us and to bring us back to this beautiful example of Mary to show us a reminder of what true worship looks like, worship that will cost us. But God, we're not worried about the cost. We're worried about, we're focused on the object of our worship because when we do, Father, everyone around us is drawn into the presence of the true and living God. So Father, today, awaken our hearts God, today, if there's somebody here that needs to give their life to Christ in salvation, Father, I pray that they would have the courage to walk forward, that that I would love to talk with them about that, Father, that we could have that conversation. God, they would find me after. They would find a a godly member, uh, somebody around them that would lead them in salvation. God, I pray that if there is a family or an individual here, that desires to partner with a church in ministry so that they can be a part of creating an avenue of worship because of what they bring to you, God, as a corporate body of believers, that they would seek your face and pursuing membership with a body of believers to do ministry together. God, if there's somebody here that's just troubled because their heart's in the wrong place, God, I pray that they would respond in obedience to you. God, whatever it is that we're dealing with, Father, may we deal with it with you. So lead us, God, even in this time of invitation, that you would be glorified in our response. In your name we pray. Amen. I invite you-